Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. The rainy season once transformed our village into a muddy island, forsaken by all but ourselves, our looms, and our songs. This program features the work of 2011 writer Harold Tall. He discussed his work with curator Susan Rich. What do you like about writing? I think I like the discovery process. Uh, I'm, I feel constantly amazed um, by uh, what winds up on the page. I couldn't imagine consciously sitting down and saying, that's what I'm going to write. I mean, it's just, it, 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 so I think that that exploration, um, it's kind of like uh, exploring a, uh, I don't know, a new country or a new city. The, the novelty of it all is remarkable. The book moves through time and space, and you visit in the novel. The protagonist visits different places in Washington State and in California. I think we've been to Idaho. We're going to the Grand Canyon, and we're eventually going out of the country. Place can be just a wonderful uh, character in a story. And so, and also just both creates images as well as perhaps pulls you out of what might be a more comfortable uh, way of approaching something. Being able to capture those those sensations and and the color, it sounds very strange, but I mean the color of the air even seems very different in a different location. Now we'll hear a selection from Harold's live reading. I want to tell you that voice is a key component of my debut novel, Adventures of the Karaoke King, which is told in a shifting first person, uh, as if there were performers passing a karaoke microphone to one another. And after I spent so long with the intimacy uh, and also the limitations of uh, a contemporary first-person voices, um, I wanted to tumble really into the expansiveness uh, of a third-person omniscient uh, narrator in my second novel, which is called Saturday's Child. So this excerpt is from Adventures of the Karaoke King. It's a first-person. Uh, the main narrator, uh, his name is Guy Watanabe. Uh, and I'd always pictured Guy as, as uh, a kid who grew up in Beacon Hill, uh, basically got a dead-end job and uh, shuffled his way along in a, dead, in, a, in a loveless marriage that was destined to disintegrate without his ever knowing. In this excerpt, Guy talks about how he lost his way. Tanya wanted to change my wardrobe. Neither of us made much money as paralegals, yet she gave me little presents as if she'd commandeered a Banana Republic boatload of khaki slacks, wool pullovers, and golf shirts. If I didn't wear one of her ensembles at dinner, she'd barely talk until dessert arrived. Once we moved in together, Tanya woke early to set out my day's clothing. Piece by piece, other things of mine disappeared. First, a pair of jeans torn to the seat. Next, a sweatshirt with a cranberry juice stain. If I asked, she'd say something dismissive about thievery in the laundry room. I never made it an issue because, deep down inside, I suspected she was right. My hole-filled socks and grass-stained sweats suggested a disguised internal rot. Three months after we'd moved in together, I woke parched in the middle of the night. I weighed whether a glass of water was worth the barefoot trek over the kitchen linoleum. Tanya's side of the bed was vacant. 
Was she having an affair? The thought popped into my head, though she'd given me no reason at that time to suspect anything was amiss. It was my unguarded subconscious speaking, the part of me that always knew she was out of my league. When my eyes adjusted to the darkness, I made out a figure hunched over at the dresser. Tanya extracted T-shirts from the middle drawer, socks and underwear from the top drawer, and dropped them into a trash bag. She left the bedroom with her loot. The garbage chute was outside of the apartment at the end of the hallway. She returned minutes later and crawled into bed. Puffs of breath tickled my cheek as she examined me for signs of stirring. The next day, Tanya gave me a new outfit. Do you love it, she said. I think it's great, very clean and very new. But you don't love it? She flattened out the gift boxes and stuffed them, along with a gift wrap and colored tissue, into a garbage bag. I'm sure I'll grow to love it, I said. She shrugged and made off of the recycling bin. She was obsessive about clearing waste. We went through garbage bags the way others go through paper towels. I picked up a book and stretched out on the couch. She returned and scooched herself with a jolly bounce beneath my feet. She tweaked my big toe playfully. Just not the flannel shirt, I said. She flipped through a magazine. A full 30 seconds later, she said, what are you talking about? I'd like to keep at least one thing from before. Tanya didn't respond. A few minutes later, she stood, stretched, and went to the kitchen for a glass of water. Then she disappeared behind the bedroom door. The next day, none of my old clothes remained except for that flannel shirt. We got married the following year. When we returned from our honeymoon, even my flannel shirt was gone. Uh, so I'm going to shift right now to uh, my novel in progress, uh, which has been just you know really exciting to to explore. Saturday's Child follows a girl's journey through her adolescence uh, during the 1970s in Southeast Asia, when she leaves her village for the city, an internal migrant on the fringe of a culture swept into the Cold War's ideological vortex. Memory is buried beneath the paved roads, the electrical poles, and the front porch saloons frequented by the illegals who took the job our children abandoned. The rainy season once transformed our village into a muddy island, forsaken by all but ourselves, our looms, and our songs. But oh, what songs. What man could resist those delicate tones wafting warm and wet in the night air, drawing him through the muck's sweet stench toward their source? If only your parents would sleep, if only your siblings would stop feigning sleep, a night alone would redeem the long day's labor, her fingers weaving a pattern out of stuff stronger than cotton thread. It doesn't matter that slender women grow into thick matrons, that flirtatious men grow into indifferent fathers. We once had our own dreams to smother. No longer. Anyone old enough to serve noodles, drive taxis, or give special massages to foreigners has left for the cities. They will plant their roots elsewhere, remittances shrinking as their wealth grows. It is said that foreigners lock their elders into hospitals. We desert them in our dying village to raise cast-off children destined to abandon us. 
It did not go unnoticed that change arrived with Mote's birth. No other child would have chosen to enter the world on such an inauspicious day. Firstborn daughter on a Saturday during the brilliance of a full moon that swallowed the stars. A ravenous dragon sent to devour the life breath of her family as they slept. It matters not what she intended, only that she was. The poisonous cloud of incense should have kept her shrinking inside of her mother's belly. The herbalist vile concoction should have immobilized her limbs. She should have listened to the generations of women who warned her away, alternately cursing and wheedling, promising her love and wealth and sweets, if only she would forbear a few more hours. She ignored them. If Mode had been larger, their collective hands could have blocked her entry into the world, but she was small and strong, so small she swam out of her mother before she could be trapped, too slippery to handle, nearly dropped, so strong that her father, relegated to the circle of men squatting around a fire outside, heard her defiant cry. He wondered at this later, looking down at this tiny creature whose ribs and spine protruded. How could such a small thing, such a scrawny thing, generate so much sound? He alone disbelieved the wisdom of the planets and the stars and the minor deities that occupy the trees, reside within thresholds of our homes. He refused to believe that Mote was born to bring death to the family. And he was her first victim. Mote's father was not a man when noticed immediately. He rushed to fill an empty glass with whiskey and held a ready smile, but no one could recall whether he'd just arrived or had been sitting there for hours. His kind is born every day in our village, a water buffalo in human form. He would have grazed forever in a misty twilight had it not been for his daughter. Weakness is always threatening, and it's weakness that Mote brought out in him. You take her, his wife said. That ungrateful child never wants her mother. He should have scolded his wife, transferred the wailing babe to the arms of a passing auntie. What he couldn't do, what he always did, was leap from his seat to comply. He trapped them both between the worlds of men at the table and women on the mats, tending to the children and food. Father and daughter departed into the night, the percussive frogs and roaring insects covering but not quieting the murmurs of disapproval. Before conscious memory, Mote's bones recalled the tunes he would hum, more vibration than sound, that crushed starlight into darkness and released the scent of perspiring vegetation. His complacence maddened Mote's mother, but perhaps she was already mad. She hadn't been destined to marry a common farmer. Years ago, a government mapping expedition had arrived at their border outpost. Provincial authorities had ordered the villagers to welcome the VIPs with a traditional celebration, fading the visitors with a roast pig, imported alcohol, and young ladies' songs. Mote's mother distinguished herself not with her voice, which was competent, but with a complexion that, unlike her daughter's, glowed with the translucence of a rambutan's flesh. A college student in pressed black slacks singled her out, separated her from her friends, and devoured her. Let the old ladies gossip. She knew he would return. She was not meant to die in this remote mud hole. He must have known what she sacrificed by returning home at dawn, the market waking, the monk seeking alms, the animals being fed. He would send for her. 
wild-eyed. She searched for his face among the volunteers who came every summer to construct reservoirs and dig wells. She paid a traveling health nurse to write a letter addressed to the university, but could provide only a first name. She rejected her mother's entreaty to start afresh with relatives on the other side of the border. In the end, nearly an old maid, she received an offer of marriage from the one man who mistook the quiver of her lip for sensitivity and her malice for vigor. For him, her tirades were like caresses. Some men are so starved for affection they can subsist on spittle. Marriage is about competing delusions that fuse into something indistinguishable from the truth. She believed she deserved better. He believed she was deserving. Although she berated him for ambitions that extended no further than the edge of the village, her scolding lost its bitter tang when diluted by his attentions. This is why Moat's birth destroyed the household. When Moat curled into her father's arms, floodwaters laid bare the shallow roots of the unrequited reverence that held her parents together. Child fated to bring her family grief, Moat should have been tolerated, not adored. Moat's father marveled at his daughter's fingertips. He inhaled the fragrance of her hair as she slept. Nothing is more obscene than witnessing everyday intimacies in which one cannot indulge. When Moat's father stepped into a, blow, into a blow meant for the girl, his face twisted into an accusation. Her mother ate with the emptiness of having been replaced. Moat's existence reminded her that regardless of the friends, relatives, and possessions that surround us, whether we believe or disbelieve in love, each of us swims out of the womb to breathe for a short time air that cannot sustain us. In the end, we live, we suffer, and we slip back into muddy waters alone. Thank you. Sound Pages was produced by Jack Straw Productions as part of the Jack Straw Writers Program. The 2011 curator of this program is Susan Rich. Music performed by Victor Noriega and recorded as part of the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. Producer is Jenny Cecil Moore. Recording engineers are Mo Proventure and C.J. Lazenby. Narrator is Alyssa Keen. And executive director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the Seattle Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, Washington State Arts Commission, National Endowment for the Arts, the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.